You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com because good causes deserve better results. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. Just to be clear, you are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to extract from our guests the practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This is a recording of a live Zoom call, and you can join these calls usually on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. You can find out all the details and register at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. We hear about scale and scaling a lot, not just in nonprofits. But what does it feel like to really do it? I'm joined by Anne-Marie Grassi Amefia, who took a small after-school club with just three part-time staff and a budget of $60,000 to over 65 staff and $6 million. It took 17 years, yet if she had to do it again, she'd probably choose to slow it down. Let's listen to why that is. Right. Okay. Welcome, everyone, to Nonprofit Problem Solver, the podcast. Uh, I'm Kev Kaya, the host, and I have as my guest today, Anne-Marie Mafia, uh, who is going to talk to us all about what it takes to scale a nonprofit and what people need to do to prepare for such a journey. And I can't think of anyone better to talk to us about scaling than Anne-Marie. Welcome. Thank you. So, um, why don't you just give us a brief introduction um, of what you, um, what you, you know, your sort of career to date? I know it's sort of dominated by the the main nonprofit we're going to be talking about, um, but uh, I'd rather hear it from you than than hear it from me. All right. Well, I'll give you the thirty second version, which because um, otherwise it gets boring, um, but. <laughs> Basically, um, when I was 23, I started a nonprofit called Open Doors Academy, which still exists today. Um, It was a drop-in center, initially a ministry drop-in center for kids. And I had this great opportunity put in front of me to um, basically take over and build it um, and build my dream. And so um, I spent 17 years um, with the organization, helping grow its capacity uh, long story short, we started at a $70,000 operating budget with 20 kids and three part-time staff, including myself. And um, upon my departure, um, we were at around a $4.7 million operating budget, but had just secured a $2.2 million earmark in the state budget um, to go on top of that, along with serving around 600 students and a team of 65 really dedicated, wonderful people that were are committed to our kids. Wow. Okay. So over 17 years, we're going from 60 to 70,000 to close to 6 million and mm-hmm. uh, from three part-time staff to about 60. Yeah. And, and nice premises too. Nice premises <laughs> too, if I, I seem to recall. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, for the head off. So that's so that's a fantastic story. I know you and I have touched upon this um, uh, from 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 time to time. Um, but what um, I hear a lot from, uh, particularly founders or people in their say first say three years as an executive director or their first three years of the nonprofit is this question of scaling and 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 what it what it really means. So when you cast your 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 mind back to that period. What were your ambitions? Do you were you did you have a very clear goal about growing, or you know was it uh, uh, serendipity? What what was sort of driving that that growth? Yeah, so I, I would say that I think in in the perfect world it's three years. I think in reality it's seven to ten for most nonprofits to really scale to any level, um, especially if you're starting from the ground up. And so I think there's this 
a pressure point that once you're starting, you have to grow really fast. Um, and even for Open Doors, I think really the first seven years was just building a foundation and figuring out who we were going to be. Of course, like any you know person in a visionary role, you're always thinking about what it could be. I remember I used to you know draw new org charts, and I would you know, think about what I would map out uh, across the thing. We could be here and here and here, and we could be doing this. But, you know, a couple things change and evolve over time. One is, as you grow and strengthen your foundation, your strategy and vision grows stronger, and it grows more dynamic, and it grows more strategic. And it and, changes too, right? I mean, and it changes. As, part, right, as part of the journey, it's going to develop and evolve uh, in 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 you know, in more or less natural ways, I guess. Absolutely. And it's also, you're picking up skills along the way because nobody starts in this role and just has all the skills in their tool belt. Like there is, you know, I, I tell people all the time, when I started Open Doors, I didn't even know what a budget was. I never, my, most people that start nonprofits don't come in with MBAs. They're usually starting with some sort of social service background. They have the heart, they have the intention, and they're forced to kind of, develop those skills on the ground. So a lot of this is about figuring out what those skills are, practicing them, navigating them, and then taking those skills and refining them along the way. So you're absolutely right. Your vision changes and your your strategy changes because your skills are changing along with it. And you're realizing really where things fit more intentionally as you go along and, and build. Okay, so just to clarify, you had some the idealism that led you to to and, and passion that led you to found the nonprofit in the first place is carried through with these uh, lofty ambitions that that often nonprofit founders have. So those are con- perfectly consistent so far. Um, <laughs> but as you said, We're so crazy. I want to unpack this thing. You, 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 say again. Oh, I'm sorry, or craziness, whichever you want to call it. Oh, cra- oh yes. Yes. It's, it's just our particular, it's the nonprofit version of crazy. I mean, we all get yeah. that. So, um, <laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to um, ask you a few questions and to un- better understand what this foundation uh, involves. So, so the, the, the main takeaway from your sort of first description was that in order to scale, you have to have this foundation and, and it can take longer than perhaps people would like or plan to lay that foundation. But the stronger the foundation, perhaps the the, the stronger, faster, broader the scaling will be, um, uh, which is, you know, metaphor I think people are, are pretty familiar with. I just want to say to uh, those who are um, joining us in the uh, in this Zoom call, if you'd like to uh, drop a question in the chat. We'll try to incorporate it into our conversation. I'm sure you have lots and lots of questions for uh, uh, Anne-Marie, but uh, as the host, I'm going to add mine in first. So <laughs> the, uh, the one, um, as I said, just tell us a little bit about what you would say, looking back, were the most important pieces of that foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you if you need to describe some of the programming or getting that right, um, then we can do that too because not everyone will be familiar with what Open Doors Academy was and 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 part of its unique selling points and you know why it was such a successful model. Yeah, so I think um, when I when I speak to the foundation and having a strong foundation, I think there's kind of three key pillars you got to have in place. The first is, you know, you, obviously you have to have a strong vision. You have to have a strong mission. You have to know who you are, who you're serving, and why you're doing it, right? Like, so you, you have to have those fundamentals, but that's true of any nonprofit, right? Like, you, you got to know what you're doing. You got to be in it for the right reasons. What's more important, though, or what quickly after developing that becomes really critical is having a clear outcome. Um, and, and I don't just mean like a, you know, oh, we just want kids to be better. We want them to reach. That's great. That's all. That's the visionary aspect of it. But what does that really mean? And what is that going to look like at the end of the day, at the end of the year and at the end of a decade? And so having clear outcomes and then having measurable and tangible goals to reach those outcomes and then a way to measure is really important to the foundation of an organization. You have to be able to demonstrate that what you're doing works and that it's impactful because it's not enough anymore to simply do good work. 
it's important that everybody does good work, whether you're for-profit, non-profit, any, any world you're living in today, it's important that we add good work in. But for a nonprofit, it wears a heavy responsibility to demonstrate strong outcomes. So when you once you have that foundation in place, then you begin building backwards on your foundation for your fundraising and your expenses and looking at do you have the right blend in order to be able to be successful longer term in a larger scale. And so when I when I think about foundation, those two pieces really go hand in hand with an underlying belly of that clear mission and vision. So you know, think big, dream big, have those those aspirational pieces, but then be ready to kind of, you know, almost like, you know, you're filling in the basement, right? So you've dug the ditch right, and now right. you're going to really start cementing the basement and building that foundation there that's going to allow you to kind of add your layers on as you grow. Right. Okay. So you're basically saying, um, if I could, if I could paraphrase the three uh, key p- parts of the foundation are identity, uh, impact and income. Yeah, love that. Right, okay. and and expenses. Though. Remember, it's got to balance. It's it's got to be a, a you've got to have. If you're charging, you know, if you're spending fifty thousand dollars per year per student on a program, the ability to scale that it doesn't matter how many followers you create, it's going to limit the ability for you to scale. So thinking about it's it's a ratio, right? It's like what can we bring in and what can we build support around, but also how do we balance that against the cost. Um, associated with developing that kind of aspect, right? Okay, so so this is this is an interesting way of looking at the not just the the impact and the outcome, which we we often uh, use almost as a shorthand for uh, for the value, and we assume that an outcome, an impact, has intrinsic value because hey, that's what we were trying to achieve. But you're adding another dimension here, which is it's got to be a uh, not just a, an impact, but but something that is um, that we can learn from and scale because you know if you if, as you said if you spend fifty thousand dollars on a on a single individual you know you, you should get an impact um, but <laughs> but it's not it's not scalable you know sort of sort of you know um, making it making it an, an efficient um, use of the resources that you are raising. Absolutely. Let me give you a quick example. I had a donor I remember it was a dear friend of mine and he came to me after going through a program in Cleveland called Leadership Cleveland. He's a colleague of both of ours, actually. I won't give his name, but I'll just say he's a colleague of both of ours, Kevin, because Kevin, yes. in full disclosure, we went through together. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> I, 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 you know, very, very clear disclosure. Right? Cleveland origins here. <laughs> it's all closely tied together. Um, yeah. But but he came to me one day and said, you know, if, if only we could just put these kids, like take them out of their families and raise them in a separate place. Well, that's great. <laughs> I remember that conversation. <laughs> You know who I'm talking about, but do, you, yeah. you know, it's a great, it's a great concept, but it's not feasible. Yes, you could serve 20, 30 kids that way, but you know, you're talking about the financial barriers to that, not to mention some of the social barriers to parents being willing to just give up their kids, which doesn't happen very often. Um, so, so really thinking about that balance is, is important. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the parents because I I know that that was a key feature of the programming, and um, I know in in nonprofit uh, conversations we tend to think it you know uh, get not get into the weeds about fundraising tactics and marketing and details about using the board, and and we shouldn't to shy away from programming almost on on the basis that it's it's unique to every uh, organization. But I think your story about how you refined your programming over time um, is 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 a really good lesson for many, uh, not just not just human service or education nonprofits, but 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 the idea of um, having a, a particular model and using data and information and contact with the people in it to refine it over time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because again, I think it's an undervalued um, piece of the foundation. Uh, in terms of scaling? Absolutely. So um, when we started Open Doors, you know, we had a very simple kind of program structure. It was, you know, provide a safe place for kids to be after school, um, provide them some nutritional support, and then ensure that they had the social emotional 
um, development aspect that was oftentimes in the early 2000s had been kind of just started um, deconstructed from the school day. So as, as the schools began to focus more and more on testing, they moved further and further away from this idea of character development, social emotional development and so forth. So there was a gap there, which is what we initially came out and said, okay, this is where our, our, our starting point is, is to really hit home on this. And then of course, some academic tutoring and, and support, but as the years evolved and as research evolved, and again, following the trends, following what you know is out there, we began to realize, you know, as our, um, it, when I talked about the foundation, when I talk about that visionary and those outcomes, you know, our initial outcome benchmark was high school graduation. Mm -hmm. So we thought, okay, well, what do we need to do to get a kid to graduate high school? And in those first, you know, I'd say seven years, our focus was primarily we need to target sixth, seventh, and eighth. We need to provide them social emotional development. We need to provide them some academic support. We need to engage the family to kind of be cheerleaders and advocates for their students and to let them know that we care and that we're in this as a team and kind of carry those kids through. What we what we began to realize again is, as the field evolved was twofold. One was high school graduation was not a significant point for us because it didn't help us reach our larger goal, which was to move children out of multi-generational poverty. So we had to move the needle of our outcome, which then evolved the needle of our programming. And so when we started looking at how do we help kids move into careers where they can be successful, we realized we need to make sure they're prepared for a post-secondary education, whether that is trade or um, college. We needed to make sure that they were work ready and able to take on those careers that they had. And again, that they still had those fundamentals that we started with, but we began building on that. And so then we began looking again, our, our outcome has grown. So now we're going to take a step back and look at how do we build that in. And that's when we began to say, okay, now we need to put in place year-round programming because we need time to do more. So that's when we started evolving into doing summer programming. And we started looking at career awareness opportunities to leverage in the summer. And how do we get these kids into experiences that are going to open their eyes and begin to train them in skills that would be helpful for them? Um, and then we started looking at high school and saying, well, how do we help prepare kids to then move beyond middle school and through our program, through a college and career prep track? Um, so we, we added components based on what we knew the outcome needed to be. So as we moved and strengthened the outcome, we then came back and said, okay, now what do we need to put in place in order to ensure success? Again, always playing on that question of when does it become cost, um, when does cost become a barrier to that in terms of being able to serve enough kids to really have an impact beyond, you know, the individual level. Wow. Okay. So you, and you were using that information um, to scale initially within the schools that you were working with. Yes. And so how did, how did that so over the over time, you you started as you said with the middle schoolers getting them to graduation. Realized that that wasn't enough, and and it's and it's grown. How were you? You weren't clarifying doing all that with say just one program. You were no. still scaling on a local level as you as you went. Can you talk a little bit about this? You know how how you scale and learn and learn and scale because they go hand in hand. It seems. Absolutely. So as we were growing the expansion of the model, we were also growing the number of students and the number of schools we were working with. You know, one of the things that came to be is as we began to really produce outcomes and be able to demonstrate, clearly demonstrate that our students were achieving the goals we had set, all of the sudden schools were saying, well, I want that program. I want them in my school. I want them here. And so we began saying, okay, well, how many schools can we take on at once? Um, now I could spend a lot of time talking to you about the mistakes we made too in this journey because it wasn't all smooth. I will tell oh, right, you that. Right, 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 right. And, um, you know, and part of that is like, it's a learning game, right? So you learn as you go along, like, okay, we grew too fast this year. We need to slow down. We need to take two years back. We need to go forward to go back or go back to go forward. And, and so there was a lot of learning on our feet as we were navigating that kind of growth process. So, so um, sorry, I'll, I'll just in, in, interject there. I, uh, to, I want to um, 
uh, unpack that a little bit. What gave you this this question you said about growing too fast this year? What what made you realize that you'd grown too fast, and why was that your your conclusion for whatever problem emerged? Yeah, to so there were growth two- too fast because when we're talking about scaling, that's usually not a concern. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it is. I think people don't like to talk about it, though. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think it is a concern for most organizations. And it's something a lot of organizations face. They just tend to put it on the back burner to keep going because there's excitement around growth, right? So there's always excitement and energy around growth. And what you often happens is as you're growing, your funders get more excited. They're, you know, I, I've never met an organization that's growing that all of a sudden says, I can't get enough money to grow. Like it's usually your funders are out there like just like making it happen for you. And that's driving this kind of excitement that's generating that. But two things happen that oftentimes get ignored if you don't really pay attention to them. The first is that your outcomes start to loosen. So your your results start to become weaker. Um, and it's not necessarily in huge numbers, but you just begin to see things slipping whether it's the ability to genuinely track what you're wanting to track and and doing so in in an authentic and transparent manner, or whether it's that you're just noticing like we're not keeping up with what we said we were doing, right? The second thing that happens is your staff start to fall behind and they start getting frustrated because they're not keeping up with the growth and it it becomes a psychological um, barrier for them that creates all sorts of disruption and challenges in the organizational culture. Um, and again, too often it takes too long to realize that. And then you're spending a significant amount of time trying to fix and clean up what maybe, you know, had you slowed down a little bit and been more intentional in terms of the speed of that growth and said to your donors, I love this. Let's plan this five years from now. <laughs> uh, probably would have been preventable, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that when you're the CEO. It's hard to do that when you're the board of directors because the demand for you to push forward is so strong and so loud in the community that we oftentimes fail to see those smaller things behind us that are necessary to come along. Right. So you were, you must have been getting then some sort of interim results. If your initial suggestion of an outcome was high school graduation. You didn't wait six years with your initial sixth graders or or five years with your you know to see if if it worked. Um, you were clearly getting some interim results because you had interim outcomes, and that's why other schools wanted the 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 program. I mean, in a sense, those were your immediate impacts with a yeah. w- you know with a subsequent goal of graduation. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, like we always had one number that was our. Are, are like, you just, there was no exception for it not to be successful. And that was our benchmark, which was our starting benchmark, which was high school graduation. So even if we maybe didn't, didn't hit it every target beyond, like that was the low bar for us was you had to get these kids through high school. And, and our standard was always three years of middle school. So if you were in our program for three consecutive years of middle school, then you would graduate high school. Then it was it was always like over 17 years, it was 100% high school graduation rate. And I mean, we would track kids down and make sure they graduated to ensure that number. But we were so focused on that number that sometimes um, we weren't tracking as closely the, I mean, we were tracking it, but we were, we were what's the word I wanna use? Um, we were becoming flexible in mm-hmm. terms of how we viewed post-secondary or how we viewed getting to the next goal. And, um, and when we slipped on it or when we didn't hit exactly what we wanted to hit, we were like, okay, we'll get it next year. And we kept going versus saying, why didn't we get it? What did we, ma- we've been doing well for five years. And then this year we slipped. Is it really just a slip or is there something that's saying we're going too fast and we need to slow down? And, and again, that's where things start to, um, uh, it becomes more, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, watered down, right? So right. everything becomes a little watered down. You start down. to dilute what your, what your focus is because exactly. it's growth over outcomes. Yeah. And, and the reality is, 
is as you scale, you're always going to have some watering down. Like there's no way that you can maintain what you did for 30 or 40 kids for seven, 800 kids. There's, there's just not. It, well, it, it, is, so there's two, there's a, here's a bit of scale. I want to, I want to um, talk about, obviously there's the scale in revenue, which is, you know, you're sort of taking more of a business perspective, which is not necessarily the same scaling the impact or the outcome, yeah. you know, so, so those don't necessarily go in sync, but the, yeah. When when you've got a, a program um, and, and a lot of nonprofits, you know, work on a, you know some sort of geographical scale, um, and then want to go either to another school or another community or another setting, that seems to me a different type of scale than growing in situ where you are. So you could double the size of where you are, uh, mm-hmm. or you could add a second location, for example. But yep. the second location is going to feel a lot more like startup. Again, because it's you're in a different ecosystem, you're doing new, rela- new relationships and new situations. And if you're if you're going like in your case from school to school to school, how often did it feel like you're just in perpetual startup mode because you're always you know you're adding okay. these new things and there's like you know there's a new principal or a new PTA or a new set of um, of other partner nonprofits associated with that school. I mean, can you talk so about the different I, I, types of scaling? I'm I'm dying because I, I see my dear friend, Amy, who is a former colleague of mine through this journey, a former leadership colleague of mine on this call. And um, I, I'm imagining that she's chuckling over this question because she <laughs> lived this. Every- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. She- <laughs> that was not a planted question, by the way. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it's, it makes it hard. It's, it's hard. You are constantly in a startup mode. And, you know, and the other challenge too that presents without even in, intentionality around it is when you're working at a building level with large districts, um, and this isn't unique to our experience. I've, I've been doing some research of, um, for uh, our largest school district here in Cleveland over the last year. And in talking with other nonprofits, this is a, a very common theme. When you are working at the building level of a larger district, you are constantly at the helm of that building's leadership, changes in that leadership, and changes in the student demographics that can constantly be evolving and changing, thus keeping you in a startup mode for years yeah. in a cycle. So you could have five incredible years with a dish with a building. And then um, <laughs> I think it's because I called her out. She's jumped off, but <laughs> yeah, she did right it. Um, but um, so you could have this, these five incredible years and then all of a sudden go through four tumultuous years because of changes in the ecosystem of that building alone. Um, so the, obviously the more that you are in different buildings, the more you are, you know, kind of spreading yourself across different environments, the greater the challenge in terms of creating consistency. Um, and then there are ways, there are ways to build consistency in that's where your, your policies, your procedures, your standardization of, of, of core principles and kind of practices come into play. Um, but that doesn't, it doesn't solve everything. And so you're no. going to be constantly dealing with that growth. But, but he, and I think, I think that is the endemic challenge with, with, with scale. So whether, whether you're, uh, you know, you've got different locations for your programming um, and a, and a challenge um, is always, um, I, I sort of refer to it as the loose tight problem where at what point uh, around what situations or part of the programming are you tight? It has to be done this way. This is the way we do it. I don't care if you're in that place or that place or that place. Mm-hmm. This is how you do it. And then other places where you can flex and be loose and say, well, I need to leave, let the leadership locally determine how they, how they make that work. And knowing what to be loose about and what to be tight about, I think is almost impossible to know until you go into that second location and and realize what you thought was essential maybe about your original site actually can flex and but there's something about the way you set up your programming or or perhaps something of, of that original ecosystem which doesn't exist in the next site and is it is threatening the ability to realize the same level of outcomes you're absolutely right in in the 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 biggest constraint and I go back to that HR issue right like I talk about 
change management and staffing is you hire people because you want, you hire them for their skills and expertise. You don't hire them to be your yes man. You don't hire them to be, you know, to think you're not creating minions, right? You're not building a team of minions. You are bringing in talented, skilled individuals that you trust to facilitate these sites. Yet there are barriers to that that become constraints back and forth of what, you know, somebody always used to give me the example of, well, you, you as the, as the leadership team construct the framework of the house and, and set the structure of the house and your team comes in and paints the walls, right? Or they decorate the, the room the way they want it to. But even within mm-hmm. that, as you're growing, that can be a great challenge because you're trying to figure out how do you hold your staff to the same consistent accountability across the board, but still allow that autonomy and sense of ownership that ensures that they feel confidence in what they're doing. And, and, and I think the other, the other, I think that's, that's like the, I think that's the core tension, uh, uh, isn't it? And then uh, alongside that is how you handle improvements. And I mean, it doesn't even need to be innovation, although, you know, people like to use the word. Um, but, you know, if your, if your third location comes up with a new way of doing something and it seems to be, you know, really exciting, does the original location actually want to adopt that or, or not? I mean, I'm not, I don't mean about just getting into these sort of location politics, but you think, okay, well, what is our model now? Yeah. Or, or how, again, how, where are we tight? Where are we loose? And how do we continuously improve when we're actually trying to standardize or, you know, which bits do we standardize? Yeah. Well, and, and there's another dynamic that comes into play with that. When you are, when, when a team comes up with something that's so innovative and unique to that, to that, ecosystem, right? That like, kind of sub-ecosystem. Um, you have two issues that can arise from that. One, if there are changes or you move staff, does that ecosystem then disrupt and how does that affect those kids and those families? The other thing too is how do you recognize the individuality of them going above and beyond to create something unique without minimizing your other teams, right? So you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, show about one campus or one school and be like, look at all the great things they're doing. And that's it, right? So you, you've got to figure out where do you acknowledge the team? Where do you acknowledge the individual? How do you, how do you share those expertise without belittling or making people feel like, well, we're just not as good as them because that can affect right. team morale. I mean, it is, it gets complicated. <laughs> right. All these humans being human. <laughs> um, so what so if someone you know listening to this is thinking you know i, I I've, perf- I've i think i've really honed in my my programming now and um i've got my board and my and my donors behind me they're they're excited we're we're really getting results our original plan was to, you know was to scale when we when we got to this point what was what how would you advise that person like what are the what are the warning signs what are the potholes to look out for what would you know? What would you uh, not do <laughs> that you did before? You know, how can they prepare to scale? Um, you're never gonna like eliminate all the scars. I get all that, and you, it's never gonna be perfect and smooth because you actually have to learn. You have to make certain mistakes and trip yep. a little bit. But how can you um, put some guardrails on it, or 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 adjust your mindset to prepare appropriately for uh, the inevitable? crashes and burns or the, you know, the tensions and so on. So I think, and I honestly would tell you that if I had the, if I, if I were to go back to ODA, which, you know, that was my starting kind of growth organization. And I think as I kind of think about what my next step is and, you know, my career, I oftentimes think about how would I do it differently, right? So how would I I could live it again, how would I do it differently? I resisted the temptation to ask it that way. But if you want to answer it that way, that's fine. No, I will. I, I, you know, I'm very, I'm very open to my flaws as a leader. I'm not ashamed of them at all. Like I, that's how you grow, right? Like, well, you, you grew up in it, right? I mean, that's right. That's, I grew that's up in that organization. Yeah. It's, I'm, I was so blessed over so many years to have so many people that, you know, like smacked my hand, patted my back and then just kept me going. Like it was, right you know, cause I really did get to grow as a leader in that experience. And if I, if I were to do it again, I can tell you that I would ensure I would slow down that process. So at that point, 
when I know I've got the funders behind me, when I know I've got the board behind me, when I know that we're embarking on this, I would say, okay, I'm going to need two more years. And I would spend that first year, an entire year, on bringing the team along with me so that by the time we took that big growth step, maybe it's not two years, but maybe it's a year, but you before you take that growth step, that you have the buy-in of the people you're going to need <laughs> to drive that change forward successfully. So taking a step back and making sure, do we have the proper policies and procedures? Do we have the right balance of centralized control and autonomy? Do we have the right vision going forward? Do people understand it? Do they understand how it applies to them in their work? Because I think that's a big thing is, you know, again, people don't join the nonprofit sector because they're looking to make a buck, right? You're not going to make millions of dollars in this field. So you're joining because you're looking for something internally. Can I find a way to connect what we're trying to do for you internally that's going to drive your work ethic forward? And can we get on the same page before we take that step forward? Because I think that is where a lot of organizations miss the mark. And then they're constantly chasing to kind of keep people at pace with them as they're going forward. So, so there's basically a disconnect between the, the, the leadership and the champions, that is the, the board and the funders, uh, being pretty clear about this expansive uh, ambition, and yet the staff who have the day-to-day know-how, whose 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 skills and experience has not necessarily been consolidated in policies and procedures, um, are are suddenly subjected to, hey, we have a second site, we have to stand up this 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 um, second program. Um, I need you to go over there and help them <laughs> yeah. do it. And, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, I now have a job and a half. <laughs> yep. Well, and you heard, I mean, I can tell you, I recall experiences where staff would be like, you're moving me again. You're moving. And, and our, our team would literally just move because strategically from the leadership standpoint, you look and you're like, I need this person's skill sets here. I need this person here. I need them to take on these responsibilities. But very seldomly we, did we say, what do you want to do? Or why this is what we're thinking. Can we talk about it? Like it was more of like using pawns and not in a way that we were trying to belittle anyone. It wasn't ever, that was never the intention, but I think that's probably how it felt um, for them because we were trying to think about, we've got it. We've got to meet these expectations. Like the board's ready to go. The funders are ready to go. The community's waiting for us to go. The, the schools are begging, you know, there's that pressure You know, you're sitting in kind of like the Instapot, right? It's going to explode soon if you don't move. And so you just start moving people where they need to be or you're hiring and you're moving, you know, you're just, you fail to stop and think, how do I bring my job? My job is the CEO. My job is the leader and my leadership team. It's not just me, but the leadership team's responsibility is to bring the team along because if they're not there with you, it makes it really hard. So it's an interesting parallel, um, and we often hear with the with the private sector about um, people being undervalued. You know the the human resource issues around uh, change or expansion or growth, and people being sort of left behind or or or, or cast aside. And and we, we don't tend to talk about that too much in the <laughs> nonprofit uh, in the nonprofit world. But I, what I what I hear you saying is that. It's easy to almost dehumanize or depersonalize this this question of scale. It's almost like it's on paper, it's spreadsheets, it's plans, it's you know making these 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 connections and these strategic level decisions. But in fact, the real uh, work is the same people who are running your programs successfully. Yes, need to be part of the scaling. And they actually have to understand what that means, why it's being done, why it's important, and 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 you know take pride in the fact that hey, if we figured out how to make this impact, yeah, should we not and be sharing it and spreading it? Exactly, and that they want to be a part of it, right? They want to feel like they were equal contributors to that, even if they didn't develop the vision themselves. Like they still want to feel like they they can walk away and say. I was part of that, right? Not I worked for that, but I was part of that. 
And, and it's, and again, I think we, but I, but if you take a step back and also then look at most of your funders and most of your board members come from the for-profit sector, right? So the for-profit sector is very different in terms of their mentality around growth and strategy. You also are very seldomly talking about human interest. When you're talking about for-profit, you're talking about machinery, you're talking about production lines, you're talking about manufacturing. It's, you know, we look at what happened. In Supply COVID. chains, logistics. Yeah. yeah, they were just making, flipping on a dime, saying, okay, we're going here, ba 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 bum these were people. But people aren't there because they're trying to save the world. Right, <laughs> People right, are right. there because they're bringing home a really nice paycheck that's supporting their family, and they're going on fun vacations or whatever they're doing. So... The value interest. Whatever it is, those people do. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying this doesn't apply to for-profits. Let me be clear. <laughs> I think we'd have, I, I think it does apply to for-profits, but I yes, think more yeah, often yeah. than not, you know, because it hasn't been always valued there, a lot of that's kind of shifted to this sector. And, and there's a need to slow down and be really intentional in what we do. Yeah. And I want to draw, uh, draw out that point because I think that's, that's, that's perhaps one of the bigger messages from, uh, our chat here today is that scaling um, shouldn't proceed uh, at a pace faster than what the, the the people are prepared to carry it. And you yeah. you you are suggesting, I think, that in retrospect, you you would have preferred to consolidate for a period of time, whether it's twelve months, twenty four months, or who knows, but a period of time to consolidate both from a sort of infrastructure policy procedure you know document everything make sure that you actually you know is watertight so that you can are prepared to scale uh and and that the people who are actually doing the programming are are also on board with uh with the trajectory yeah and i i also want to point out just as a note we did do it eventually i just feel like we did it too late so we started that process of slowing down in 2016, we probably should have started that process in 2011. Um, so by the time <laughs> okay. we started it, we were already at 15 locations serving year round, hundreds of children. And it, we were so in that it was hard to shift back. Um, and I think we spent more time trying to clean up and disassemble kind of preconceived notions about what it was to change minds versus inspiring minds, right? Like in, in instead of like using it as a growth model forward, it was a repair and, and restore. And that takes right. a lot more work. That a takes lot, a lot more yeah. work. And, and it's interesting though, you, when you get to a certain size and you have uh, a certain number of people around you, I mean, you're, you're no longer an ED, but you're a CEO with a, with a, with a, with a C-suite team and, uh, experienced program managers, and you've got a development team, and you've got an events team, you've got all these people around with different ideas, different experiences, throwing in the mix. And and in that cacophony, though, there is the value of, hey, wait a minute, should we look at this slightly differently? Whereas I feel when you're really small, that notion of being in startup mode, oh. no one has the time or space, like, like the world is right in front of you all the time. And it's difficult to get that perspective. Yep. Um, and so sometimes you have almost baked into this a, a repair and restore <laughs> yeah. when you actually have the have the have the bandwidth the capacity to do it. So how can you how can you plan for that and be more intentional about those sorts of things? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I think early on when you're in that entrepreneurial phase, you really I mean, you're wearing a million hats. Um, you know, I always joke my default leadership style, like my kind of innate leadership style has always been dominated by two skill sets, driver and pace setter. Like I was, which is perfect for an entrepreneur. Like it is the ideal natural setting for an entrepreneur. You're, you're, you're energized, you're, you're driven, you're going to make things happen. And you know what, if it's not happening fast enough and somebody you've hired you or you've contracted somebody else to do it, you just pick it up and you get it done. Right. Like, and that's when it, when you're wearing 20 different hats, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like that works. But as you evolve and change to your point, you have to learn to adapt and, and change your own leadership style to meet the needs of, of the organization at that point. 
What I think I would say is to entrepreneurs, to those to those people that are wearing all those hats that are on this kind of cusp. Um, and I've worked with several of them. I've worked with a lot of startups. And, and the hardest thing is, is you have to be willing to change first, right? So even in that entrepreneurial mindset where you don't have the bandwidth around you, you have to be willing to look at yourself and say, can I begin to adjust some of these things in the way that I approach things in order to begin that process? And when you begin to scale, um, I believe there's a, there's a critical piece missing in majority of strategic plans. And that is the step back to go forward piece, right? So mm. again, even our strategic planning processes are very much set up as you know, we develop a vision. We well, we refine our mission. We develop a vision. We set goals. Then we set action steps. What we oftentimes fail to do in a very intentional manner is say, "What is it going to really take from the the ecosystem as a whole in order for this to be successful?" And that includes those dynamics around change management, HR. You know, how do we engage and develop funders without driving it too fast forward? How do we bring staff along? How do we make sure we have the right people on the boat too? Because um, a lot of times as you're growing, you have to make changes in terms of who's sitting in the, the various seats in order mm. for that vision to be fully realized. So again, the more that we can kind of slow down and be very intentional in that mindset um, and in that process, I think is, is more likely to see less time spent on the back end fixing, repairing, or going through a change process then. And, and, and the way to start that, though, the initiative there, you're saying, comes from that ED or CEO by taking the lead in change. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, uh, suggest that it maybe is from that person, instead of wearing a million hats, starting to relinquish those hats and focus on what a, a leadership style that um, builds on that particular person's strengths and then sort of them backfilling a little bit <laughs> with, with yeah. other things, you know, so they're not doing everything and they're, they're relinquishing the things that they are least good at uh, and bringing, you know, bringing those skills on board. And that's in a sense, part of the consolidation. Yeah. And I also think it's probably one of the hardest things for a, a leader to do, especially when they, it's their baby. Like when you started something letting go is, is like, you know, it's like being a parent, right? Like, it's like letting your kid go. Like it, it, it's like gut wrenchingly painful and it's because you're trusting somebody else. You've nurtured this thing. You've, you've loved it. You've nurtured it. You've given it everything you've had. And now you're handing it almost to somebody else saying, okay, I trust you to give it the same as me, but, but do I really? Right. So you know, and I, and I've watched, you know, I struggled with that. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I did. Founder syndrome. Yeah. Oh God. Struggled with it immensely. I've watched other people horrifically. I mean, I've watched them take down their own ships trying not being able to let it go. And I think it's why you do see oftentimes where, you know, you, you read articles on it too, but where oftentimes the entrepreneurial founder usually within the first five to seven years moves on and you, you bring in somebody else because their leadership style, if they can't adapt it or adjust it, you know, need they need to move on and let somebody else come in that can kind of take it to the next realm when they're not so emotionally attached to it. And and that's common and that happens quite a bit. Um, or you watch them just kind of like suffocate it to death um, right. because but they you, can't. you don't see it in the nonprofit set. You you see people list on their LinkedIn. Oh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I started this and sold it on and whatever. You don't, you don't see like yes, I've started 17 nonprofits and left after the second year. <laughs> you, know, well, you, know, you don't see people boast that, that way, but maybe we should. Is what you're <laughs> suggesting? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would say go start <laughs> another three or should. four. Like I get, as soon as I left open door, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, next venture you're going to start, I'm like, I'm not starting anything again. <laughs> I'm going to go find something somebody else really right. built a solid foundation right. on and help improve it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to spend and, five years stopping. <laughs> yeah. Like it is insane to me, the idea of another one. Um, but yeah. it's true though. It's, it is, it's something that is really, and again, you know, you go back to the psychological aspect of you're not talking about, you're not, when you walk away, you're not walking away with millions. You're not. You're not taking dividends from the nonprofit. You are 
you are truly like letting your baby go and moving on and it's it's yeah hard. it's a lot of intangible benefits yes they're in your head they're in your heart you know that's, yep. it's yeah. hard and it's true but i've watched i've watched all sorts of different leaders and how they've handled it and and you know i've seen leaders that have stayed 30 20 30 years and then they go to hand it off to somebody else and it's so um it was so heavy handed because they didn't make a lot of the changes that need to be made. And now they're, so there's always this process right. where if you, if those aren't evolved and changed, people are going to have to come in and, uh, you know, adapt and, and change that in at the back end. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. There's so, so much here, very rich conversation about, <laughs> uh, about scaling and some of the pitfalls and uh, some of the things to do and not to do, which is exactly what I what I hoped. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a for a long time. For so thanks for uh, thanks for letting me pick your brain. Um, this is uh, where where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you to ask you some direct questions. So people are welcome to email me at Anne Marie. It's A N N E M A R I E at myainnovations.com. Okay, MYA Innovations. We're going to put some links in when the um, when the podcast is released, which should be not too long. This has been episode 23 with Anne-Marie of Nonprofit Problem Solver. Uh, next week, we are also uh, having another uh, Cleveland Connection. I'll be speaking to Chris Putnam-Walkerley about her new book, Delusional Altruism, which should be fun. Um, and uh, I hope you can uh, join us. It will be uh, again Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. But that's all for us today. Thanks for joining, and thanks, Anne-Marie. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. I'm grateful to Anne-Marie Gracia-Mafia for reliving her experience of scale and sharing all those lessons. You can email her at annemarie at myainnovations.com. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results.